So this is the first time I'm using Zoom to record um, a podcast. So I hope it works. I'm doing it because you're a dinosaur. No offense. Anyway, <laughs> you're using an iPad and you didn't have the software. So that's fine. No, no worries. I just hope it works. But listen, Debbie Evans, um, I wanted to speak to you. You're quite a prolific writer for UK Column, which is a big UK um, alternative source of news, um, a proper source of news. A lot of, you know, I think what mainstream media is, is basically propaganda. Anyway, I don't want to say too much. I want you to introduce yourself and explain who you are. But we were going to, I mean, there's so much we could talk about. Um, but we were going to focus on kind of like telling, not even reminding, because a lot of people don't even know what it used to be like. Um, they need to be informed. They need to be informed what the NHS was like, what nursing was like, what the wards were like, what doctors were like. And um, you're you're quite experienced, also known as you're really old. No, I'm just joking. Like you're just older. You're older and you can remember a time when it wasn't like it is now. It's basically shit, right? Every patient that comes and sees me tells me it's a shit show. Everyone's stressed out. Those who are not stressed out and burnt out are off sick with mental health or physical health issues. If it's not that, they come across a staff member that's rude and just, you know, like just computer says no. Computer says no. Staff are unhealthy. They're overweight. There's no team spirit. It's just a nightmare. The NHS is inefficient. No one seems to care. Has it always been like this? Or was it different? Like the carry-on movies. If people don't know carry-on movies, just Google it and look up a YouTube video. I mean, it was just, it was a bit cheeky and naughty. You had like the young doctors, very good-looking nurses, a lot of shenanigans going on. Everybody seems to be having a laugh. Patients were good. They just sat there and they well, lay there in their beds and didn't do anything, didn't complain. <laughs> it was just, I don't know. It When I was growing up, it felt like hospitals were different from what they are now. And I remember visiting the hospitals when my mom had, you know, my little brother, baby brother and, um, you know, stuff like that. So I, I, and it's different. It's different from what it is now. Can you just talk me through that? So who are you, first of all? What are you doing right now? What's your interest? What's your background? And then talk about the past, if you don't mind. And I'm going to sit here like a, a James Bond villain and stroke my cat. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And it's an absolute pleasure to be on your first Zoom. So let's hope it turns out okay. So yeah, great. my name's Debbie Evans. Um, I, I trained as a, an old-fashioned state-registered nurse back in the dinosaur days of 1976. So um, anybody wants to work out my age, you don't need to, because I'll tell you, I'm 65 in a couple of weeks. So it's no secret. and. Ever since then, I don't know, I think my training at the Royal Free Hospital in London, I mean, I'll go back to that in a minute, but my training and the way that I was taught in the NHS was completely different from what I'm witnessing now. Mm. And when COVID hit, um, I bought into it. I'm not going to lie. I bought into it just for a little tiny amount of time. And it was actually my son that said to me, Mum, 99.8%, I think it was, of people who get this get better. And it was mm. like light bulb moment. 
like, wow. And from there on, I hit the ground running and I started to take notice of what was happening around me. I was looking at red flags. I was very suspicious on the swabs. I was very suspicious on this time frame for this novel vaccine. I was very suspicious on the government narrative. I couldn't work out why nurses and doctors were doing some of the things that they were doing. None of it made any sense. Mm. So then I kind of, I'd gotten together with um, the the late and great Ian R. Crane on his AV conferences. And I was talking about another subject that is dear to my heart, which many UK column viewers will know me for. And that's uh, water companies and wastewater and sewage. And I did a I did a presentation for AV and I got introduced to Brian Gerrish from mm. UK column. Mm. And from there on in, Brian and I kept in very close contact and I'm very nosy. I'm very nosy and I love to research. I absolutely love it. And over a couple of years, we were exchanging information constantly. And I was researching in the background um, as a volunteer, really, for UK Column. I was over the moon to be doing it. Mm. And then here I am now as uh, one of the presenters on UK Column, mainly focusing on health, the NHS, um, what was the NHS was like, mm. what the NHS is like, and also the NHS long-term plan. So what we have got to look forward to in the next six months, in the next year. So I've kind of gone into great depth about the NHS. And, okay. you know, a lot of people think that the NHS was formed in 1948 by Nye Bevan. Actually, we need to go back to 1942, 1943, okay. when the whole social reform was taking place with William Beveridge. And William Beveridge was talking to David Rockefeller. So all of this... What we what we saw in 1948, which was this amazing health service, was actually planned in in the middle of the Second World War. Right. Um, I so know going back, yeah, it, it, a lot of people take it back just to 1948, but go back to William Beveridge, and you can mm. see that the NHS was incorporated in this in this plan. And um, you know, originally it was the the, the concept was free. Uh, healthcare for all uh, at, at, at point of contact, there would never be a cost and that everyone would receive a welcome. And it was just irony, really, that I started at the Royal Free Hospital, which was the first free hospital that was ever created. Um, so back in 19, well, I was born in 1958. And in 1969, when I was 11, I decided I wanted to be a nurse. I just woke up one morning and I wanted to be a nurse and I didn't want to be a ballerina. I didn't want to be anything else. I just wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be a nurse at a London teaching hospital because back then, you know, it was it, it was a fight to get a nursing place. You couldn't just ring up a hospital and say, oh, I'd like to train as a nurse and get welcomed in straight away. There was a mm. huge procedure there was a huge procedure and Bart's bless them, uh, wrote back to me and said, apply when you're 18. So when I was 17, um, I didn't do brilliantly at school. I wasn't very attentive, but I applied to Bart's and I applied to all the London teaching hospitals. And um, the Royal Free was the first hospital that accepted me and also accepted me just two weeks before I was 18 because you couldn't start to train as a nurse before you were 18, but you had to have five O-levels 
and you had to have studied to A-level. You didn't need to have any A-levels, but you needed to have five O-levels. So I was over the moon that I'd been accepted at the Royal Free and I'd gone through three interviews. So selection processes, a second interview, and then a third practical interview. So it was- Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a real honor to be be accepted. I mean, seriously, it was an honor to be accepted as a nurse. Um, And there were only 70 places. We had two intakes a year. There were only 70 places and there were probably four or 500 applicants per per set. So we were, yeah, it was, it was a big thing to become a nurse and it was a huge privilege. Nobody signed up for it for the money. Nobody. But what it was, was we always felt a little bit hard done by really, because we saw all our friends going off to uni and they were kind of enjoying themselves and having parties and maybe turning up to lectures and maybe not. And we had to work on the wards hard and we had to study as well. And we had to do practical assessments. So when I left home at 17 and 11 months old, um, I went to the nurse's home in New End in Hampstead, the most beautiful area, absolutely beautiful. It was right next door to a pub and it was right in the heart of Hampstead and the Royal Free was down the hill. Yeah. I was introduced to the home warden because, you know, the nurse's home, it had rules. It was very, very strict rules. We all had our own rooms, but we all had to share a kitchen and share a big lounge if we wanted to socialise. I mean, people were just bobbing into each other's rooms and it was a bit like a family atmosphere. And the home warden would make sure that we were behaving ourselves, that our uniforms were not being washed in the nurse's home and that they were being sent to the hospital laundry. That was the rule. And no men not after 10 o'clock at night, no men. That's right. I, I, I say that with a slight wry smile, but it There's was... There's a lot can, that can be done until 10 o'clock anyway. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, this, nurses have got... We're, we're very... Um, we, we, get, we, get, we get through things. So um, when, we, when I started nursing, I joined with a, a, a 70 other... Um, girls mainly. Uh, I think we had one guy in the set at that time. So it was predominantly girls. We were all the same age. It was the first time we'd left home. It was all really exciting. Uh, We were told that the minibus would pick us up from the nurse's home and would take us to the hospital. We were looked after, you know, they cared about us. Well, they didn't just care about us. They wanted to make sure that A, we were obeying all the rules B, we were on duty on time. And C, we were remaining professional at all times, at Mm. all times. We were issued a uniform. Uh, We were so proud to get our uniforms. I mean, honestly, it was like that was the one thing that we wanted. You know, we wanted our uniforms. We wanted to be proud of who we were. If I remember correctly, and this is what I mean, like I'm old enough to remember, you know, I was born in 75. I remember going and even like as a six-year-old, I've got a crazy memory. I remember things since I was two. I remember seeing the nurse with her little cap, little pinny thing going on, and and she's got badges, and um, she they would they would always have this lovely buckle, like a lovely belt, blue belt, red belt, with this shiny little metal bu- buckle. It all looked very, very nice, you know. Very, you know, the uniform was like almost military style. It was just, it was, you know, you just looked, and they're all trim and smart. It was like that, wasn't it? 
Yeah, well, it's funny you say that, actually, because when I went to the Royal Free, they just introduced the national uniform, which we all hated. It was this blue and white check. I've sent you a couple of pictures, actually, of me at the Royal Free, just qualified. But we still had the navy blue cape. We still yeah. had the, the hat. And as student nurses, we had lines around our hats. So if we were a first year student nurse, we'd have one stripe. And if we were a third year student nurse, we'd have three. And I'm, then looking at your pic- I'm looking at your picture now. I didn't know that was you. Wow. Yeah. And when we qualified, we got a frilly cap. We got a really lovely frilly cap and we were so proud of that. So our uniforms were incredibly important to us. The belt and the buckle that you remember, because yeah. I've sent you another picture actually of me at Bart's because I did actually get to Bart's as soon as I qualified at the Royal Free. And at the, in oh, the yeah. uniform of Bart's, you'll see me in a really tall hat, which was called a fifth year cap. And I had the traditional candy stripe uniform. I had uh, little whites. Um, we used to put them on our sleeves, little puffy on our sleeves. We had a, a pinny, a white starched pinny. Yeah. We had all our badges, which showed where we trained. The little watch. The little yeah, watch. and the, the fob watch, pens in our pockets. And then we'd have a navy blue belt, depending when I was a ward sister. I had a navy blue belt with a buckle. When I was a staff nurse, I had a slightly lighter blue belt. So we could tell. And, you know, patients loved the uniforms because they knew who we were. They And, and it made this bustling sound as you walked around the ward. And, and there was this reassurance that there was somebody always there and there was somebody watching you that cared for you, that was going to make sure that you were safe. Debbie, someone might be listening and think, why the hell are these guys talking about uniforms? Who cares? Oh, we do. We so do. Do you know what? It's a sense of pride. Every hospital back in my day had a different uniform. And so we were part of, I was part of the Royal Free family. And the, the we had this friendly competition between hospitals. You know, we had a rugby team at the Royal Free, a rugby team at St. George's or the Charing Cross. And we'd wear our Royal Free scarves. We'd wear our outdoor Royal Free uniform because we were proud. We were proud of where we were. And it identified us. And mm. it gave us a sense of belonging. It gave us a sense of being part of a very privileged community that was charged with looking after people's brothers and sisters and fathers that's the first thing so this is all but this is all fine and dandy how does this translate to being good nurses and good doctors i think it i think it translates into order without chaos it introduces a sense of responsibility it introduces a sense of seriousness when you put your uniform on you then become a professional person. Mm. You then become very aware of who you are and what your responsibilities are. And you lose your uniform, you lose your nurse identity. And that's very important. You very think, important. But a lot of people will be saying, but they've got uniform. No, they haven't. They've got pajamas. You know, when I worked in an operating theatre, I Mm. wore pyjamas. We didn't wear the uniform that we've just been describing because it wouldn't be practical. And Mm. many people said that the uniforms back then, the dresses weren't practical because, you know, when you are bending over to make beds and you're tending to patients and you're turning patients, then practically speaking, trousers are probably um, more discreet. However, 
the pajamas that we used to wear in theatre, I'm seeing nurses wearing in every department now, but I'm seeing them walking out of A&E or out of the ward straight into Tesco's. Yeah. And we couldn't do that in our day. We had indoor uniform and then we had outdoor uniform. We could not go outdoors in our indoor uniform because it was an infection risk. Our uniforms were laundered by the hospital laundry. We couldn't wash them ourselves. They had to be boiled. Uh, so aren't, aren't, they, aren't, aren't they washed like that now? No. As far as I'm aware, there are no hospital laundries. And nurses, literally, I see nurses coming out of a hospital. They're going straight into Tesco or they're going straight into other supermarkets or shops or, or picking up their children from school or going around to see their friends in their uniforms. We would have been disciplined for that. It's as simple as that. The uniform was for work purposes only. It so wasn't other purpose. Very similar. So when I when I first started, we had to wear a white coat in 1998. And the white coat was issued by the hospital. And it was actually cleaned and laundered at the hospital laundry. Yeah. But within, I think, a year, there was talk of the laundry service being closed down. And the contract for all the laundry going to a big place out of town and all the stuff would go there, this massive central place where all the different hospitals would be sending their stuff. What you found was, you know, we were told then you didn't, you, you can't wear a white coat. It's an infectious infection risk. And these white coats that we were get, being given that were clean and starched um, were gone. And we just had to wear, you know, our own clothes, roll up our sleeves, take off watches, take off you know, everything. And I never saw any studies or papers to show that the, this was going to reduce infection. I understand about washing hands and whatnot. But what I found was over the years, people got more slovenly. You had consultants that came in suits and were very smartly dressed. You had the nurses in their little smart outfits. You had the junior doctors all in their white coats. Now, everyone looks the same. No ties, no jackets. Everyone's very relaxed. Trainers. It's just, and I think with that relaxed dress comes a more relaxed, I don't know, and you know, slightly less professional. I, I completely know. agree. I mean, I'm seeing nurses walking around. I mean, we had, we had to wear K-Skips shoes. We had regulation shoes and they weren't cheap back then. You know, you were probably talking 50 pounds back in 1976 for a pair of regulation shoes. I see nurses now walking around with pop socks with trainers, with completely, even shoes with heels. You know, we would have been, this was not allowed. It was not allowed on the ward. We had to have safe shoes that were quiet. And it's all it about big, standards, isn't it? It's all about standards. Completely. Just, just, just having it, like, have standards. And if you, if you let go of standards, things just start falling apart, slowly starts crumbling. So let's move away from the uniform. I think we've got that clear now, right? There's no yeah. uniforms now. The other thing about uniforms is, you know, you've got a sense of... Um, identity. Identity. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. And when you when you rob that, you know, nurse, doctor, you kind of lose that identity. You, 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 just, you could be anyone. I mean, you, you could be a manager. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you differentiate between a manager and like, you know, one of the junior doctors now? It's, it's almost impossible. You don't. You don't. And I'll tell I you don't. a story. Recently, one of my relatives was in hospital. 
And um, I went to visit. This was pre-lockdown. Mm. And I went to visit and a lady came into his side, his side room and she was dressed in a navy blue dress. And um, I automatically presumed she was the ward sister. So I started divulging all my relatives' uh, medical details and saying who I was, only to find out that she was the lady from Mighty who'd come to deliver his food menu for the evening. So I had no clue who the member of, who, who anybody was on the ward. I, I seriously didn't know. And I don't think that that's good for patients. I think patients and relatives need to know who they're talking to. And I completely agree with you. The relaxed attitude in just something as simple as uniforms gives a relaxed attitude in practice. And that's what I'm finding slovenly, I think is the word. That's the word, slovenly. Right, let's move on. So what else has changed? One of the things I noticed was a just a gradual erosion of the team structure. You know, I I had a consultant, there's a, a firm, you know, I actually had to go to the consultant to get the job. I handed in my CV. They either liked the look of me or they didn't. You know, I got a lot of doors closed, but I got a lot of doors open, so I don't care. Um, but you know, the consultant knew who you were because they gave you the job. They looked at your CV and said, "Right, I'll pass it on to the manager or whatever." And you got, you know, you got the job that way. Um, but you knew you knew who all the staff were. You knew the nurses. There was all the matron on the ward. You even knew the cleaner because it was a cleaner on the ward who was responsible, took a lot of pride in cleaning the ward, you know, um, and was very strict, would tell you off if you did if you did something wrong. I have left. to say, the cleaner ran the ward. Tell Seriously. me then. Okay, uh, tell me. What was it like in your day then? The cleaner ran the ward. They were amazing. I mean, some of them had been there for generations. So it was mothers, then daughters and sons and grandchildren, and they all, and their ward you know, they ran the ward. If you're, if that ward was not spick and span and clean. They were spick and you know, span. I mean, honestly, they took such, such huge pride. It wasn't just about the ward sister. It wasn't just about the staff nurses. These staff used to be on wards for years. And where's that hospital smell gone? Oh, you where, that ho- where, where's you know it the- gone? Do you know what I mean? You used to walk onto that hospital and be yeah. like, it had that that really clean, yeah. chemically, but it was like a clean hospital smell. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't have that now. You smell the dinners and they smell disgusting. Yeah, because hospitals have changed. I mean, you know, I remember as a child, I would go and visit my great grandmother who was in a hospital called Highlands Hospital in North London. Yeah. And it was yeah. separate blocks. It was individual. You had a theatre block. You had a couple of wards that were, it was only, they were only two floors, these stories. So you'd see patients being wheeled out into the grounds because these hospitals had grounds attached to them. Mm. You'd have massive windows that would be open all the time. Mm. You'd have a day room where you could take patients and they could talk to each other and you could open the day room doors. I worked at Stoke Mandeville Hospital as well, which is all on one level or was on one level. And patients were being taken outside. They were experiencing nature. They were having coffee with their relatives in their beds. I mean, we'd we'd wheel their beds outside. Windows were open all the time. Blinds were up. Now we've got these concrete tower blocks. You can't open the windows. They're like Petri dishes. They're 12, 14 stories tall. You're imprisoned in this concrete Petri dish where you've got no... N- nothing to do with the outside world. It's almost like you're locked in. 
And well, in my, is, it was so is, important that patients got fresh air. Yeah, this is crazy because uh, this is really crazy. Look what a bloody small world this is. Because I was a consultant at Stoke Mandel Hospital. Well, there you go. I yeah, was. I, I was on. I was in theatre at Stoke Mandeville, and I was on a ward called Ten X. You might remember Ten X. So it was a, one of the little kind of um, prefabs down. Yeah, well, was the entrance. They built a, a new extension when I was there, and when I went there, and that's the and 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 it was very different. There were no one was wheeling a patient out. A lot of the grounds had been sold off for you know housing. So a lot of the grounds have been sold off or made into car parks. No one, no patients going out and being wheeled out. No one, no one was, had windows open. There were no big tall windows. So even what I'm trying to say is, it's, you know, when I went in 2010, I'm telling you right now, I I don't recognize what you're talking about. Wow. Well, it was Nissan It was Nissan huts in my day. So you drive into mm-hmm. Stoke Mandeville and there was kind of a line of Nissan huts and they stood, they'd been there for ages. Mm. And it was, uh, um, it was uh, on, on one level, pretty much. And the spinal unit uh, was circular. I remember it being circular. And we would have windows in. The, the day rooms would be at the end. They were the old-fashioned nightingale wards. And there would be the day room at the end of the ward. And then in the day room, there would be French doors in this Nissan hut type thing. And we would. We'd wheel the patients out. We'd have to lock the day room doors at night. We'd always lock the day room doors at night. Um, but, yeah, we would, even at Great Ormond Street, you know, even at Great Ormond Street, which is a tower block in the centre of London, yeah, the old Great Ormond Street, if you look, they're probably still there. The wards had massive great big doors, even if you were on the sixth, eighth floor. And then there was like this wire netting that went over onto a balcony where right. we could wheel children out in wheelchairs or in their beds so that they could be in the sunshine and be in fresh air. You know, even that. So there were ways around it to get patients outside. They didn't okay. have to remain in the wards. And then going back to the actual wards, you've got this de- dedicated cleaner. So that that's not the case anymore because now you've got contractors like big, you know, cervic, cervical or whatever they're called. Cervical. Mighty. Well, yeah. yeah. They, they just basically bring in their cleaners and... You know, you might not have a cleaner consistently, the same person. After a few months, it might be someone different. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the contracting out, contracting out to the cheapest available person. And that yeah. person is coming to the ward, but it's not allocated to that ward. And they don't take pride in the ward. They're just doing a job for bare minimum, bare minimum wage. Um, You know, there's no loyalty to the ward there. So no, the cleaner... No the clean, loyalty. And actually, if you have like a spillage or something, you have to call a central number... And then yeah. they, and they get a, a number, a tag, a, a, you know, an order number, you know, a job number, something stupid like that. And then they'll send out a team to clean up or whatever. It's kind of, it's, it's madness. So that, common, that common sense has gone literally out of the windows that no longer exist. Okay, I mean, so how, how else did the team structure change? Sorry for interrupting. Well, the team structure, the, the staff that were on the wards had been there for years. You knew when I was in my training, we would always sort of go, oh, we're going to Calthorpe Ward and its sister. I can still remember her name, but I won't say it. But it's it's sister blurb blurb. And you better be on your best behavior because she's really tough. You know, she's she's really, really hard on student nurses. Or you would say, oh, we're going to blah, blah, ward because it's sister. You'd know there would be the sisters have been there for years. They ran their 
wards independently. So it was their territory and they ran it like clockwork. And you always had two or three staff nurses that had probably been on that ward for years as well. So the and the student nurses, having student nurses right from the get go, from eight weeks of preliminary in school training where we would practice giving injections into oranges and things and making beds and how to give a bedpan and how to calculate how many drips went through a, an intravenous drip. When we went through that eight weeks, then we mm. were hurled onto the wards and the student nurses were the heartbeat. They were the heartbeat of the hospital. Because for every ward that you had, you'd have one sister or maybe two sisters for, for, to cover uh, day and night, two sisters, and probably three permanent staff nurses. And then the rest of the ward would be an allocation of student nurses who were coming to that ward to do that particular speciality, whether it was cardiac or liver or pediatrics. So the hospital heartbeat was the student nurses. And so my training, we were on the wards all the time. We would occasionally go into school for a week mm. to learn something new and to do mm. an assessment. And then we would go back out onto the wards. All the time, there was a circulation of student nurses. And we were having to meet the highest professional standards because we had eyes watching us the whole time. If it wasn't the matron, it was the nursing officer. If it wasn't the nursing officer, it was the school of nursing. If it wasn't the school of nursing, it was the house warden. If it wasn't the house warden, it was the ward sister. So we had eyes on us the whole time, which meant that we had to be professional and above all, the big message that we had when we started nursing was TLC, Tender Loving Care. It was the first thing that was drilled into us when we started. But when you go out on that ward, I was my maiden name was King. So I was student nurse King. And I was told student nurse King, just remember that the person in bed three or bed four is could be your mum could be mm. your sister, could be your loved one or your relative. TLC, treat them like they were one of your own. Always be, be kind because tender loving care, we used to prescribe it. We used to have it on the bottom of a patient's chart at the end of their beds. If it was a patient that didn't receive regular visitors, if it was a patient that was going through a particularly hard time or maybe needed us to sit down next to them and have a cup of tea with them, we would put TLC on their charts just to remind people going around, just stop for an extra couple of minutes and have a word and make sure that that patient's okay. Hold their hands, be kind to them because it, it's the best medicine ever. And TLC is gone. It seems to have gone in, in a lot of areas. I, I, I've got a few questions to ask. So nowadays, nurses have to go to university Right, rake up a massive debt, massive, massive debt. Then they work for peanuts. They work for absolute peanuts. They can't even afford to pay off the debt, never mind living costs. And you've got nurses now going to get their food from food banks and they have to pay rent, you know, they, or, they, or if they do have accommodation, they have to pay for accommodation yeah. and you don't, you don't get anything from the hospital. You know, was that the case then, back then? No, 
No, and it's interesting you say that. Actually. So, what, what was it like? What was it like then? Tell me. And why was, so it, it, why, was why is it interesting? What I'm asking. Well, because Jenna Platt, I spoke to Jenna Platt, who's a registered general nurse, and she trained in the Project Two Thousand Days when nurses have to go to university for eighteen months before they even get let loose on a ward. So they're in a university, and she when when we were talking, we were talking about what my training was like and how her training was. And she looked at me and she said, Debbie, I'd have done anything to have trained in your day. And it's true, you know, because when I first started nursing, my first contract was £1,100 a year. And out of that £1,100, and I thought I was rich on that. Trust me, I thought I was rich. I'd just come from home having like £2 pocket money a week. And so having £1,100 a year. Yeah. And... I had to pay, I think it was £10 a month for my nurse's home room. I didn't have it's to not pay. Bad. My, no, it was nothing. Um, I lived in the middle of Hampstead, which was a very lovely place to live. Extremely Still is. expensive. Still Absolutely. Um, I had free transport to work every day. So a minibus would pick us up from the nurse's home and then a minibus would be ready to take us home whatever time of the night it was, half past nine or if we were doing a late shift or if we were doing nights, we'd have a minibus back. We had a, a very heavily subsidised staff canteen. And if we, if a nurse was seen in the canteen at quarter to eight or eight o'clock in the morning, it was a black mark on your copybook because if you would go to, on duty at half past seven and you were bleary eyed and you hadn't had much sleep and you hadn't had any breakfast, the ward sister would order that you go immediately to the canteen, have breakfast first and return to the ward when you've had a proper breakfast. So, oh, wow. yeah, I mean, that was the level of care that we had. We were. And how we much was it to get your, your food from the canteen? How, how much were you paying for that? Oh, pennies. I mean, you know, 25p for breakfast, probably back then. It was so, heavily subsidized. So hold on. This is you, day one, year one, you've gone in as a trainee nurse and you're getting paid £1,100 a, a year. year. So you're yeah. getting paid to be a trainee nurse. You're yeah. getting significantly subsidized accommodation and you're not paying for any transport. And no. food is dirt cheap. Yeah. And on so, top of that, because we wore a uniform yeah. and we wore an outdoor uniform, often the London cabbies, bless their hearts, if they saw us out, they go, come on, in the cab, we'll take you home if we'd missed the minibus for anything. So they'd take us home. And back in that day too, when I was working in accident and emergency, if we needed a lift, sometimes the police would give us a lift because the police would often be in A&E and we'd have a close relationship. The police would bring people in and they bring us fish and chips at three in the morning or wow. they'd whistle. Yeah, it, honestly, it was such a privilege wow. and such an honour to so, be a nurse. So hold on a sec. So now nurses have to pay thousands of pounds to study to be a nurse. Yeah. And a lot of money to pay to be a nurse. Yeah. And and then and they're so they're not getting paid, they're paying out and they've got massive debt. They have to pay thousands of pounds in rent a year. They have to pay for their transport, whatever it is they're doing. If they're driving in, even you know, as a consultant, I had to pay to park my car in the car park in the hospital. 
Oh, no, you'd be given accommodation back in my day. We had a separate block of flats next to the hospital for the consultants. So the consultants would all be offered their own flats if they needed or the senior doctors. And parking was always free. And that's when the NHS trusts all started making staff pay for parking. We never had that parking. I mean, imagine imagine having to pay to go to work, like to park your car at your place of work. It's crazy. It actually, it's, it's absolutely mental. I mean, you're driving to work, you're going to work and they're like, yeah, you need to pay to be able to park your car. And, you know, if it, no one knows where Stoke Mandeville is, it's in the middle of bloody nowhere. I mean, it is in the middle of nowhere. It's a countryside. It was, yeah. it's, it's not like you can park your car and then walk to the hospital. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's surrounded by fields. So you have to park your car in the car park. And they're like, yep, you need to pay £700 a year for the, you know, the luxury of doing that i was just like what this is taking the piss so yeah. i mean this is actually just mind-blowing what you're describing as a nurse one thing i want to go back you know when i was in the nhs throughout my time even in the early 2000s it was oh my god we haven't got staff we haven't got staff the turnover of staff the sick leave then you had bank staff people just coming and going who you didn't know who didn't know the hospital and bank staff god bless them you know, they don't know where anything is. Some of them, not all of them, some of them, they don't care. They're just there for a couple of days. They make a bit of money. You know, uh, pff, not my job. If something goes wrong, what are they going to do? I'm not going to be here. It's not like I'm going to be punished or get into trouble. It's not like I work there all the time. You know, I'm just here for a few days. Bye-bye. Hasta la vista. So they kind of do the bare minimum. You're telling me right at the beginning, you know, nurses was the like, it was a sought after job and more people were applying than actually were like the positions available. Yeah. How does it happen now where we we just don't have enough people? <laughs> What's gone wrong? What's happened? I just don't understand. We don't look after our staff. Um, the staff that I see now that are struggling, that have got loads of debt, that haven't got anywhere. I mean, many of these hospitals, you know, if you think of somewhere like the Royal Free, in the middle of what well, between Hampstead and Belsize Park, so a very expensive area. Right. What's happened is that they've sold off so much of their assets. So yeah. the nurses' home that I used to live in, for example, is now very exclusive flats. The hospital that was opposite my nurses' home, which was called New End Hospital, which used to be a geriatric hospital, was sold off and became flats. Part of the Royal Free was Coppets Wood, one of the only infectious disease hospitals in the whole of England. And yet it was out in the middle of nowhere. It was, you know, Lassa fever, green monkey disease, something like Ebola would have gone there, sold off. So, and if you go onto the government website and you look at what the government is selling, they're selling off at the moment part of Moorfields. They're selling off part of Pond Street, which is part of the Royal Free. They're selling off health clinics. They're selling off ambulance stations. So, oh, wow. The, the yes. Asset, asset stripping is carrying on. Yeah. And it's been happening over the years for a while so that nurses have never been offered their own accommodation. I mean, it was like going to university, but being paid to go to university. Admittedly, it wasn't a lot of money, but we all got by. But it wasn't just that either. It was the fact that when I started on the first day that I started, I met 70 other people of the same age or very similar age with all 
wanted and we'd fought for our places and we all genuinely wanted to become nurses. And after three years of the 70 that started, 62 of us survived the whole lot. So the dropout rate was tiny. And those people that had left, I, I remember three of them had left because they became pregnant. Um, and then I think it didn't suit a couple of others. But we had the camaraderie as well. So if we'd had a bad day or we'd we'd seen something quite upsetting or we were anxious about something, we had our colleagues, we had our own peer group to be Debbie, able to Debbie, talk to. This all sounds great. But listen, the important question is, was there enough diversity? <laughs> right, listen. It all worked really well. It all worked really well. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. You know, um, listen, look, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Now, tell me, listen. I want I want to record this. This is this is important piece of history we're documenting. Cause like I said, a lot of people don't don't know about this, right? So, you know, I was talking to my wife last night. I'm really looking forward to speaking to this Debbie Evans. <laughs> I'm going to talk about nursing and what it was like in the old days, you know, and how they didn't go to university. My wife pipes in. I think it's really important that they go to university. No. I, went, I went, why? It, of course. Like, uh... you know, so there's a lot of people like her. Smart people like her. She's a doctor. She's a surgeon. She thinks it's a really bloody good thing that nurses went to university. Poof. You're suggesting they should go to nursery? You stupid conspiracy theorist? You stupid, dumb anti-vaxxer? So tell me, why is it not important that nurses go, go to university? Or do you think that for some nurses at some point, they should go to university and that most nurses don't need to go to university? What, what is it? What's your, what's your viewpoint? What would you say to my wife, who is of the opinion, all nurses should go to university? Of, of course they should. You don't need to learn how to be kind. You don't need to learn how to be compassionate. You don't need a degree to do that. You don't need a degree to prove that you can manifest compassion. And but nurses need so, to know about diseases and conditions. And you know what? It was all great in the old are days. Nurses No, that's your job. That's your job as a doctor. Nurses are your observers. We're there to observe the patient in your absence. I don't need an iPad to tell me what my heart is doing. I don't need any device of any medical sort to know how somebody is. All I need is a mirror to look at myself to see how I am. And I need my hands and my eyes to observe other people. And I need my mouth to speak to them, to communicate with them. Nursing was nursing in my day. And what I'm seeing now is nursing has become a tick list. You do not need a university degree to become an excellent nurse. And many of us, we didn't have university degrees. And I would like to think that I would give somebody the very best care I can with the very best knowledge that I've got. And if I'm not sure about something, I will learn about it. And I will ask somebody like you 
the questions that I need in order to be able to carry out the job best to my ability. Of course, we have to learn about certain diseases. Of course, we need to know about, we specialize in the end. After three years of doing a general training and a bit of this and a bit of that, we find that we specialize. I specialized in theater. I specialized in eyes and ear, nose and throat. So, of course, I found out about disease. I found I was I was learning anatomy in nursing school, anatomy, physiology. I was learning pharmacology. I was learning basic nursing care. I was learning a lot about serious adverse reactions from what drugs. I knew what drug I was giving to my patient. If I didn't know what the drug was, what it was used for, what the side effects could be, then I was not doing my job properly. So I think think this is important to clarify. Just because you didn't go to university doesn't mean that you didn't get an education. I went to nursing school. I think this is what people need to understand. I think there's a lot of people who think university is the be-all and end-all. And what they don't realize is it's not that simple. It's what are you actually taught? And I think what you're describing is that you were taught a significant amount of things in nursing school. One could argue that nurses, modern day nurses taken through university are actually indoctrinated and taught simply to follow guidelines and protocols. You were free thinking agents and now you've got automatons who are laden with debt, who are not going to question, who are not going to be critical thinkers and are going to toe the line. That's what I would say. We did. If you think about it, how long is a is a, a university degree, a BSc or a BA? Three years, right? Mm. Three years. My training was three years. It was still a three year course. It was a, it was intense. If I wasn't on the ward working eight, 12, 12 hour shifts, eight rows of nights, I was studying. If I wasn't studying, I was in nurse school. And I was learning about what I needed to know. So I worked really, really hard. Didn't you have any fun with the doctors? Loads of fun with the doctors. (laughs) Loads of fun. You know what? I would have been making you toast in the hospital kitchen probably at three o'clock in the morning and having a bit of a giggle. But we would have been communicating about our patients. We would have been forming a relationship so that you, I would understand that you probably would have been extremely tired. Maybe you've been on call two nights. Maybe your bleeps been going off all the time and you're shattered. And maybe the canteen is closed. So we would make you, it would be up to the nurses to look after the doctors. And the doctors similarly would look after the nurses. We both had our own roles to play. We would coexist. We we had to coexist. We we couldn't function without one another. I mean, the amount of doctors, the amount of naughty doctors that would leave a little tray at the end of the bed because they'd taken blood from a patient and then they've just left everything at the end of the bed. That's my job to cover for you before sister comes on and goes, where is where I'm going to see that doctor? They've left that, blah, blah, blah. So we would cover for you. And it was a team effort. And so, yes, of beauty, of course, of course we had fun with the doctors. But do you not think it's a good thing as medical knowledge and science knowledge has advanced that nurses go to university and learn more things and are doing things like taking drugs and, you know, doing the drugs and, 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 you know, taking blood and 
you know, just doing more of the work of doctors. Don't you think that's a good thing? Don't you think that's like a sign of advancement? Do you know what I do? The first thing that first thing we do when we come on the ward is we would go around to every single patient and we would say good morning. And I think it's really, really important that nurses know who's on their wards, that their patients know who's looking after them. And so, no, I don't think walking around with an iPad, sitting at a desk on a computer, digitizing everyone's data. I think standing next to a patient, sitting next to them. And I I got told off loads because we weren't allowed to sit on patients' beds. We are absolutely not allowed to sit on patients' beds. But I always broke the rules because it's such, it's so comforting for a patient to have someone sit on their bed, hold their hand, share a cup of tea with them. It's so much more important than some of the things that I see that nurses are being taught now to say hello to your patients and then to also say good night or goodbye so they know you've gone. It's a scary place. You know scary. Is, what you're describing is so true. You know, it's stressful being a patient. It's it really lonely. Is. It's lonely being a patient. It's vulnerable being a patient. It really is. And having human contact, having someone smile, someone greet you, someone that you know you can trust, someone who's there checking in on you. These are soft little skills which are so important so important um but we're now in this world of gobbledygook and management speak and you know these fancy terms that people use but actually on the practical level it's we've gone backwards if that makes sense you know we talk we talk about guidelines and signaling and scoring mechanisms and this and that and making sure hygiene and this and that but actually there's no one there checking in on the patient patient has you know weed their bed no one has checked on them patient's fallen out of bed broken a hip because no nurse was around there's not enough staff you know i mean and errors are being made and so you know you can get all that fancy jargon and all your policies but on the practical level you're not getting what you're describing. Now, listen, some might argue you're just remembering things with rose-tinted glasses, you know, and your your memory's a bit foggy. And, you know, things change for a reason. They must have changed for a reason. And, you know, maybe infection's less now. Maybe infection was a problem. People were dying. People were sick. I mean, was there an issue back then? You know, were, were, were there, you know things that needed addressing and and these changes that have been brought in, you know, the change to nursing, education, training, the, the, the structure, the team structure, you know, has it improved matters? In my opinion, no, it hasn't improved matters. And I'm really sad to see that this has happened because the system, I mean, look, we were always busy in our day. We were always, the beds were always full. A&E was always full. Was infection I mean, a problem? Did you have massive problems with infection like you do No, now? because we had an infection control sister and we had rules and we had standards, as you've said earlier. You know, the uniforms helped. So I know we're going back to uniforms again, but they were all boiled by the hospital laundry. There was an infection control policy going on. And patients, you know, you see relatives coming in with a McDonald's or, you know, takeaways or whatever, 
we they weren't allowed to do that in my day. You know, that was not allowed. Patients, but you're not you're not allowed flowers now. Flowers are infected. Oh, risk. don't even start me on flowers. Did, did you not don't have massive even, infection outbreaks with all those oh, flowers? Do you know what? You've just hit on such a sore subject because flowers, where have they gone? Where, where have they gone? I'm just so upset. Do you know what? At two o'clock every afternoon, the doors of the ward would open and in would come all the relatives. And they are our regulators. The relatives were always our regulators because, you know, if there was a problem or if there was something out of place or there was a question, the relatives would pick us up. We didn't need any, any regulation from any members of staff, actually, because we had it with the patients, relatives and loved ones. And they'd walk in at two o'clock and they'd be armed with flowers, grapes, uh, cream cake, probably um, a few magazines. And that was the norm. And we would always be running around the ward trying to find vases because there was never enough vases. But it was just so lovely. And in my day, if there was a patient that didn't get many visitors or was away from home, we would we would take flowers so that they would have flowers on their locker next to them so because nice. we it, no, it's not nice when you're surrounded by people with no, cards. No, no, I'm, I'm saying it's so nice having flowers yeah. next to you. Yeah, it really is. The smell of flowers. Having nature, look, a bit of nature. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It was amazing. And it was lovely for us as well. But So why, did they, get rid- why, why did they get rid of it? Was, is there a proper infection risk or not? No, of course not. It's just, well, not in my opinion. I mean, I'm sorry, but um, I think flowers, the colour, the smell, the the autobiographical memories it brings back for people and the fact that some Why the hell did they get rid of it? A good question, because they said that, um, number one, it increased the nurse's workload. It provided a lot of water that was going green. You know, sometimes the vases weren't changed, blah, blah, blah. They came up with a reason for everything, but all of us at the Royal at the Royal Free where I trained, um, I was the first set in the brand new Pond Street Royal Free. There was a florist on the ground floor. Yeah, there always. I remember that when there were florists in the hospital. There were florists, and some ha- hospitals would have florists outside floral yeah. stalls. It's nice. It's lovely. And but a bunch. Now- but now the relatives bring Lucozade and, and energy drinks and and garbage and. McDonald's, isn't that okay? Yeah. No. Well, I mean, honestly, I think so, we go back every time. To be honest, to your word, which was standards. There were standards, and you know what it is. I identify as a grumpy old white man. I'm okay. just upset about everything. You're going to get the police round in a minute. I mean, honestly, the hate crime. Oh my goodness, let's. It has. We've gone wokery mad. It's I'm simple. just so grumpy about everything. I think everything is just falling apart. Standards, I'm sad. standards everywhere just bullshit. And the problem is, young people now just don't get it. I mean, even my wife, you know, she's ten years younger than me. She's, you know, oh no, it's a good thing you know she's all good university. And I'm just looking at her and like, where do I start? I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to leave it till she no. hears this podcast. I she think needs to also, hear you. you know, yeah, but also nurses that go to university. I've met quite a few that have gone to university. They've done the whole eighteen months in uni. Then they've gone onto the wards. They've decided that nursing's not for them, and they've left. So they've just gone. There's one thing. It's one thing. It's one thing having a lecture. It's another thing being on the ward and changing a bedpan. 
Oh, you don't need to do that now, apparently, because what I've learned is that nurses have tick lists. So now that we, in my day, we had student nurses, we had pupil nurses, and we had mm. nursing auxiliaries. Mm. So student nurses would do the three-year course and hopefully qualify as state registered nurses. Pupil nurses who wore green would um, do a two-year course, and it was far more practical based mm. and nursing auxiliaries would help everybody as and when you needed help now we've got these healthcare assistants that have been brought in so nurses have kind of been upgraded if you like almost to junior doctor level yes yes where nurses are having to manage budgets on the wards they're having to know so much technical information bureaucracy paperwork yeah. They've, it seems as though nurses today have been upgraded to junior doctors and that healthcare assistants have been upgraded to nurses. We were not allowed. I'm technically not allowed to call myself uh, a nurse because a nurse in my day was state registered nurse. You'd have to be on the register to be able to call yourself officially a nurse. Mm. I'm retired, obviously, so I'm not on the register. So legally, I'm not allowed to call myself a nurse. I can call myself a retired nurse. Mm. So we seem to have upgraded people and untrained people are now doing what we as trained nurses were doing. So bedpans, bed baths, um, mouth care, turns every two hours, we would do. And nurses don't do that now? No. So did you have care assistants, healthcare assistants? No, we had pupil nurses who were amazing, very practical based, and we had nursing auxiliaries. And the nursing auxiliaries were like the cleaners. They'd been there for years, so they knew the ward, they knew the staff, they knew the procedures, they knew where everything was. It was amazing. So nursing auxiliaries and the cleaner had been there for absolute decades. Whose smart idea was it to break all this up? I don't know whose idea it was, to be fair, but it started in America. This whole this whole thing of sending nurses to university started in the USA, and we knew at so, that point it was yeah. going to come here. Because look, nursing, nursing. I mean, it's, it's in the la- it's in the word, the definition. You nurse someone, yeah. you care for them, you touch get them dressed, them. you touch, touch them, you clean them, you wash them. You, t- you know, care. you help, you care for them. You help them go My to the bathroom. You, you cheer them up. Yeah. You give them love, empathy, compassion. Yeah. And, and you tend and, to your... And, and yeah. you liaise with their families. Isn't really, it? really important. You liaise with their families and you find out who's feeding the cat. Because something as simple as that, who's going to feed the cat? Who's going to pick up my pension? That puts people into meltdown. Little tiny, we would all lost that. that. We've lost that now. We've lost that. We would send patients to convalescence. They'd go off to the seaside, to Bournemouth or to Eastbourne for a couple of weeks if they'd been in hospital. I mean, an appendicectomy, for example, you'd stay in hospital for seven days for an appendicectomy. If you if you were having your first baby, you were in hospital for six days. You weren't booted out the afternoon in the afternoon if you'd had the baby in the morning. You weren't you weren't just booted out with no care. You and if you'd had a, a hip replacement or if you'd had a hysterectomy, for example, or if you were elderly, clinically vulnerable, 
we would mm. arrange a convalescent home. So we would release the acute bed in hospital and we would move that patient to a convalescent home for two weeks in the, by the sea whilst a package of care was being sorted out for them for when they went home. Can I tell you something really funny? My first mm. day on call as a junior doctor, I, I, I got collecting my bleep. I got really excited and I got my white coat, put my... um my bleep on my white coat pocket and I had to go for a wee and I took off my white coat and as I took off my white coat my bleep fell bleep. into the toilet on my did you wear night. your stethoscope around your neck as well yeah I did it was kind of it was kind of cool we we felt reassured those you know little the, funny things you know, you know the first night on call first night on call the nurses sent me to do a catheter and I went in and I didn't know this they didn't tell me this he had priapism. Oh. And they're basically taking the piss. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I came back and went, I can't do it. And they all giggled and laughed. Giggling <laughs> was so much of it. You know, in my day, um, a nurse going onto the ward for the first time. And it, it did happen. It's been a story going around as a myth for ages, but it did happen. Um, one nurse was told to clean false teeth. And so put them all in one bowl. All of them. Everybody's false teeth in one bowl, but didn't oh, know whose oh, false teeth they were. Oh, yeah. no. It was like, I mean, but but you know what? <laughs> These things did happen. And we had a laugh on the wards. We shared smiles. And as many sad times as there were, and there were sad times, we would be able to sense the occasion. We would know what how to be with that patient a patient i can't begin to tell you and you've already touched on it but i think it's really important really important because it is a scary place for a patient to be in a hospital it's different smells different way of of different noises different people you're not feeling very well you're at someone else's mercy and now today often you're alone in my day there would be relatives that would be allowed to stay either in hospital accommodation or oh, wow. if, if yeah, and if it was a terminally ill patient, a terminally ill patient would be often moved to a side room and the relative would, would be allowed to stay with them for as long as they needed to be allowed. We, we'd put up a bed next to their bed for them and we'd make them as comfortable as possible. So it was always about patient-centered care. It was always about the patient, the touch, the observation, the kindness, the few words, just as you're passing the bed. Are you okay? All right, I'll be with you in two secs. It was the visual thing, seeing yeah. people all so, the time. So does that mean in the middle of a so-called, so, so-called pandemic, would you have been doing TikTok dances? No. Okay. Absolutely so, not. And I right. certainly would not have been working in a hospital and then going to Tesco's to pick up my groceries in the same uniform. And I saw that right through lockdown. Next. Um, when on my day for I think one or two years, when the consultant went around for, on a ward round, there was a ward, there was a matron, there's a team we'd go and the nurse would know everything about that patient. I as a junior doctor knew everything about that patient. 
And um, I often talked about this, but as I got more and more senior, I said I was just riding the wave of shit. All the shit that I was doing as a junior doctor, I was then doing as an SHO, and then I was doing as a consultant. I was the one who had to know all the information. Um, suddenly I'm a consultant, and my, you know, my my patients are all over the freaking hospital. They're in like eight different wards. I'm going up to the wards, and n- there's no nurse. Every every nurse is like there's two just like two nurses on the ward and they're all busy. No one knows anything about a patient. No one knows where the results are, where the notes are. No one's record keeping. The junior doctor I have never met before doesn't have a clue, doesn't care. You know, busy on their phone. And you know, I'm a consultant, and I'm just like I I just feel like no one respects me. I'm running around like a crazy person. Standards, you know, it's just I remember what it's like as a house officer in 1998. My consultant, Dr. Beatty, would not be doing what I was doing as a consultant in 2010. You know, I mean, I know it's a while, 1998 to 2010. But, you know, in that time frame, I just saw things just fall apart. And, you know, up until 2017, when I left the NHS, it was a fucking shit show. You know, I'm running around. I've got no respect. Staff are burnt out and exhausted. Junior doctors are just so precious. I mean, we are. What's that snowflake? You couldn't say Boutoukos. If they're late, you couldn't say anything because you might offend them and upset them. You know, if you say anything wrong, you might get done for harassment or bullying. It's, it was just a fucking joke. You know, it was just no standards. Sorry for swearing, but I really got passionate about this. No standards, no care. No one knows anything. No one gives a damn. And you're just like, what the hell? Turn the clock back to my day. Mm. And consultants were absolutely respected, 100%. So that when a consultant entered the ward, a nurse would all, that nurse, the nurse in charge of the ward, whether it be a sister or a senior staff nurse, would be immediately present with that consultant because they would be, we would be responsible as being in charge of the ward. We'd have to know everything about every single patient. We'd have to know every single patient's name. We'd have to know exactly where the notes were, what the drugs were that they were on. Why was there a hold up with an x-ray? Why was there a hold up with medications? Have we organized their care home? There would be an absolute inquisition. And, you know, I remember one ward in particular when I was a senior staff nurse at Barts. Mm. It was a ward called Stanmore. And there was a most amazing professor of endocrinology there, Professor Mike Besser. And he, I remember him as being six foot four, Uh, six foot five, but actually at the ward, he was like seven foot, eight foot tall. And he was very imposing. And he would do a ward round at 8 a.m. on Mm. a Thursday morning. Mm. And if I was in charge of that ward, I would be on that ward at 5 a.m. And I would be making sure that all of those patients' notes were in the right place, that their lockers were tidy, that the patient's weight had been done, their observation chart had been filled in properly, the curtains around their bed had been pulled back properly, the blind was lifted, the ward had to look immaculate, and the patient's notes had to be up to date, and all of their documentation. And when Professor Besser used to come on the ward, he used to come with about 20 medical students. And as the nurse in charge, you were the only nurse. And if there was something that the consultant, that Professor Besser wanted to know, and you didn't know it, you were made to feel that big, that big in the middle of a ward round. But that's bullying and harassment. 
No, it's not because then he'd turn up on Christmas Day and he'd carve turkey for all of the patients for Christmas Day, the patients that were in, and he would be there on the ward for them and he'd be talking to them. No, but billing, billing and harassing you and making you feel small if you never got something No, right. no, it was actually making me accountable for my patients. That's what it was about. It was reminding but, but me. But didn't, didn't would, you have a billing problem then? No, we had accountability. We had rules and regulations. And, you know, I, I don't think I, I know of any work environment where there isn't some form of bullying going on at some at some point of time. Bullying's been going on since time ad infinitum. So I'm not saying there was never any bullying in the NHS because I'm sure there was. I personally maybe only witnessed it once or twice because rules were rules and we had to remain professional and, and keep to our professional standards at all times. And if we were expected to know something on a ward round and we didn't know it, I'm not saying he'd bark at us, but he would he would maybe look in a certain way mm. as if you should know that, or he would nod a sort of disapproval, or he might say, if you could please find out, sister, immediately i'd like to know and so it was highlighted um and i you don't know, think that's unreasonable but it's changed so much so give, let me give you an example let me give you an example so in 1998 i'm you know i'm doing surgery i i have to go early and see all the patients who be on call find out why they've come in get ready with their history and the examination make sure i've looked at the x-rays the patients who are going to theater i've gone and checked them consented them marked their limb and um i've read up the anatomy and i know what the operation will be and i'm just a, the most junior of doctors and then i present at the meeting the history the story the consultant asked the more senior doctor the sho you know some pertinent questions about the surgery then they'll ask the registrar if they're happy doing the operation and what would happen is the sho and the registrar would do the operation and i might assist and stand by and have a look and whatnot but they none none of them had to do anything. The SHO didn't have to do anything. The registrar didn't have to do anything. The consultant didn't have to. I'm marking the limb, consenting, getting the patient ready, having all the tests at hand that tell the anesthetist everything. You know, that's that was my job as a junior doctor. And if I did my job very well, maybe if I was lucky, after six weeks, eight weeks, I might get to close a wound. But only if I knew the answer to all the questions mid-operation by the registrar or the consultant. What artery is that? What nerve supply is that? What's this tissue here? And then, you know, I remember I I I jumped all these hoops. It was about two months in, and um, I got I got right to the end of the question, and then the surgeon said, "What kind of suture would you use?" And I gave the right answer. What kind of needle? Diamond or or, or you know, um, you know, round body. Cutting diamond cutting needle or round body? And I was like, oh, I didn't know. Um, and then he said, well, when you do know next week, then you can close the wound. I mean, that's what it was like. Yeah. Um, and then you got to close the wound, you know? Yeah. But as an SHO then, when I was an SHO, suddenly it's my job to mark the limb and consent. I was like, I just did that last, last year. Why am I doing it again? Then when I became a registrar, I was like, why am I still the one who has to mark the limb and check the consent? My junior doctors didn't know anything. They, they, I was like, by the way, you're on call. Can you tell me this, the history of this patient? Oh, 
I don't know. They came in overnight. I went, didn't you check? No, I'm here for the trauma meeting at eight o'clock. I went, well, yeah, you could have come in at seven to look at these patients. Yeah, but my contract, I don't start till eight. Do you see the mentality? Yeah. So now as a registrar, I'm doing the job I was as a house officer, going in, seeing the patient, consenting them, examining them, reviewing everything, doing the surgery. I'm asking the juniors, do you know how to do this? Um, and they don't have an answer. They don't know. They haven't read the anatomy. They haven't examined the patient. They haven't consented. They haven't asked the patient, can I take part in the surgery? Um, and now I'm a consultant and I'm still doing it. I'm having to go around the ward, see the patients, take a history. Because when I go to the trauma meeting and say, right, tell me the story. Why is this patient here? Oh, the doctor who was in overnight is doing a post-take on the general surgical ward round because he was covering. Um, none of us know anything about this patient. And I'm like, if I hadn't gone round, no one knows why this patient's come in and whether they need this operation or not. Do you see how mad it's become? Yeah. And because we've now lost the team structure, you don't have the, uh, the European working time directive. People are working these, uh, these short hours and shifts. People are coming, clocking on and clocking off. The, the chap that was on till nine o'clock last night is no longer in the hospital. He's not in the hospital today. And, you know, they're meant to do a handover. So much for the handover. Like I said, the other doctor's gone off to do another meeting somewhere else halfway across to the hospital. And we need to make a decision. Is this patient going to hospital or not? So I'm having to now do the pre-meeting ward round, examine them, consent them, mark them, look at the imaging, all the jobs of the junior doctor, and I'm having to do the surgery. Because when I go to theater, I'd have a junior doctor pitch up who I'd never met before, never seen. So it's not like me having worked for three months with the same team and earned their trust. This person pitches up. Hi, Mr. Malik. I want to do this operation if that's okay. Okay. Um, and you are? <laughs> have you have you seen the patient? No. Have you so you, you haven't consented? Well, no, but I, I I assume it's been done. I went, yeah, I did the consent form. Have you read up on the operation? No. What about the anatomy? No. So how are you how are you going to do this operation? Um, because you're going to teach me. That's the mentality. Oh, can you see my face? I'm like. Because in my day, you wouldn't have to have just relied on your junior doctor to have taken a medical history of your patient. And I remember doctors coming onto the ward. If we were on call, if we were on call that night and we had an admission coming in at four in the morning, I remember the doctor got out of bed, was on call, got out of bed, and they came and, and, and admitted the patient. But yeah, I did that. Yeah, well, you, you wouldn't have just needed that because you would have had the nurse. We would admit a patient as well. Yeah. We would take a full history. We would take a social history. We would take their personal details, allergies, what they'd come in for. We would also check with them consent forms. We'd make sure they'd got a bracelet, an ID bracelet around their wrist. We'd made sure that behind their bed, their consultants and um, their junior house officer was named behind their bed. We'd make sure that before you came to admit the patient, that you would have baseline observations. So temperature, pulse, respirations. You would know all of those things before you admit the patient. So there, and we would, it would take us, I mean, I remember sometimes on a really busy ward, sister would say to me, oh, student nurse, can you go and, um, can you go and admit Mr. Jones? 
and it would take a good 45 minutes of my yeah. time yeah. helping them unpack their bag giving making sure they knew what their patient call bell was and where it was and what they could do with it and what time visiting times were and who we were it took 45 minutes to admit a patient so you would have had all so, of that information so so standards see it comes back to standards standards gone. have gone standards have gone and gone. then so you know i i know so many of my colleagues who reach out to me and they, they tell me their biggest one of the biggest stresses is now they're having to tiptoe around all these snowflake doctors who either are making mistakes or you know that just the standards aren't there and they can't call them up they can't say hey by the way because they'll get <laughs> they'll get done for bullying and harassment so what happens is standards keep falling down and down and down because mm-hmm. you you're too scared to address them and 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 there's no accountability and there's bad habits and bad practices get perpetuate. I mean, it's honestly quite shocking. But so, the whole roles change, though. The whole role. I mean, in my day, we'd look after patients' palliative care. We wouldn't farm them out to Macmillan or mm, to Marie Curie or to a yeah. third, uh, you know, to another organisation. We would do from birth to death. So we would. Our role was completely different. But I find that shocking because, like I said, you ha- you didn't go to university, so I don't understand how you're qualified to do that. I'm joking. So, you know, it's just it's just ridiculous. You know, this whole notion you have to go to university, you have to get this massive debt to be able to do your job. I think it's I think it's it's, it's a scam. It's an absolute it's scam. It's criminal. It's, it's criminal. They've destroyed. I personally think, you know, the nursing profession has been destroyed. And what they've done is they've said to some of the senior nurses in the Royal College, hey, listen, you get a big gong, become a dame. You know, you know, educate your nursing. You know, you're you're just as good as a doctor's. You know, doctors aren't that special. You're just as important as a doctor's. You, you know, you look how smart you are. You need letters after your name, and you know what? Um, yeah. And then you, you know just what? and you just diluted and you just diluted, diluted, diluted the system. But it's not just that. I mean, I'm sorry. Just one more thing. I mean, no, I no, spoke no. I spoke to Bob Gale and I spoke to this anonymous NHS manager. People should listen to those podcasts. And Bob Gill talks about the privatization of the NHS. It's nothing what it was, you know, nothing. Over the decades, it's, it's been stripped back, privatized. The soul has been taken out of it. The beating heart has been taken out of it, been murdered. And now it's just this hollowed out husk. And people think they're working in the NHS. They're not. And the system has been designed so that everyone is, everyone's morale is rock bottom. Everyone has lost their compassion because it's so shit. It's so painful that you just have to become cold to survive. Because if you care, you'll end up with a mental breakdown. Or like me, mental breakdown down and leave. <laughs> you know, because you just can't take it anymore. So you either suffer mental health issues and have a breakdown or you leave. And the ones that stay, I mean, in some respects, you know, the only reason they can stay is because they have to be cold and not care. That's the only way you can manage in that horrible environment that's being created. So they're victims as such. I used to think, oh my God, you know, but now, now I feel sorry for them. I feel, I feel like they're, the staff are just as much victims, you know. I feel um, we get a lot of emails from a lot of health staff that aren't able to speak out because they're still within the, the system. NH- yeah. And many of them say that they're there 
purely because they feel that they ha- they can prevent things from happening and they can they're in a position to be able to care for patients in a way that patients should be cared for so there are some still amazing nurses and doctors out there that are still yeah. battling the system in order to give those patients and god bless every single one of them because Absolutely. they do they do exist my wife and, included you know, yeah. she's, she's in that chest so she bloody well cares about her patients yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I got sent her this amazing book. I have to show it to you. It's called To Heal the Sick. Um, and it's by um, Jane Dean. And it's all about nursing in the NHS in the 1960s. Oh, the belt, the belt with the buckle. Yeah. So there <laughs> you've got. And that was actually very like my. my look, look, look how ornate my... and beautiful that is. Yeah, Phil, they were silver, solid silver. I mean, wow. when we when we qualified, I received wow. a book hospital badge that was solid silver it had my name engraved on the back of it and the year that I qualified and then we also received a a silver badge from the general nursing council for midwifery nursing and midwifery which was our general registration badge so we would wear two badges it was and 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 we'd actually have a royal college of nurses badge as well if we were part if we joined in with the royal college of nurses so it was all silver Solid silver. Well, I mean, I, honestly, I mean, as much as that's nice nowadays, all the nursing staff have got rainbow lanyards and rainbow LGBTQ PRXVYW exclamation mark flag badges. So, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just incredibly sad because you know, back in my day, we had fun. The patients, the patients, especially some of the patients that were kind of near to discharge. And when I was at Bart's, there were we had, and, and I was on a general medicine and um, endocrinology ward, and we had quite a few um, gentlemen. It was a men's ward, uh, cabbies, and and people that were maybe quite not so fit and had a few heart attacks and stuff, but they were recovering really well. Mm. And before they before they go home, you know, they'd often do the tea round. You'd you'd see a patient, a couple of well patients in their mm. dressing gowns and slippers, walking around the ward with a tea trolley and talking to the other patients. And it was brilliant because they'd be helped. They'd love it because they were helping us out and they felt that they were doing something. But can you imagine in today's health and safety? I mean, it would be out of the window. In my day, we walk around with Nelson inhalers, you know, big pottery Nelson inhalers in big bowls of boiling hot water. I mean, that would never be happening now. Um, we had mercury thermometers for all their bad that 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 the kind of thing oh gosh mercury we had thermometers behind patients beds we had clipboards on the end of their beds with their observations and stuff and their general well-being you know it those were the days um those were my days and they were happy days and the patients we would have a laugh at christmas we would turn our capes inside out so that the red was outside and we would walk around the ward and we would sing carols. Um, wow. We'd have tin- tinsel. Christmas. In, in one of my wards, in Stanmore Ward in Barts, it was amazing because we'd decorate the ward. I'd go to Oxford Street and D.H. Evans and Dickens and Jones and Harrods would all give us decorations and we'd decorate the wards. And so patients would... Christmas lunch. Can I ask you something? I mean, this is all beautiful what you're describing. Did you also notice, I mean, when did you actually leave the NHS? When do you, like, 
I left the NHS really when I um, had my fourth son permanently. So 1994 was when I left permanently. But then I re-qualified. I went to university. So I did go to university and I did a PG cert and I'm just about to complete a master's in autism. So I was kind of not a clinical, not not within the clinical setting. but back in 1994 and stuff, did you see any of these changes happening or was it still quite yeah. good? Yeah, things, changes were happening. And Project 2000, it was it was kind of around the advent of that. And we knew the nurses that had trained in the same sort of training as, as me on yeah. the wards all the time, we knew that this was going to be problematic. We were seeing nursing officers coming in more and we were seeing less and less of sisters on the ward sisters seemed to be locked in their offices and they were on the phone doing budgets looking after the kind of mechanics of how the ward and 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 I noticed too that as I was finishing it wasn't a, a matter of have to have two nurses to do a drug round in my day there would always be two nurses with a drug trolley one would be the senior nurse one would be a junior nurse but you'd have to check each other We'd have to walk up to the patient, check their ID band, check, ask their name, ask them if they're okay, check safety the drug checks. Safety checks. Yeah, like a, a thousand safety so, checks. So, so why did now the nurse? So why? I mean, you're right because nurses are locked in the office and doing admin. But who was doing that work before? Well, we were doing we, we, the, the admin. The, well, we had a ward clerk, so we had a domestic. We had who had been there forever. We had nursing auxiliaries who had been there forever. We had nursing sister and then we had staff nurses, but we had a ward clerk and the ward clerk would take phone calls from different departments, make sure the notes are in the trolley, ready for the doctor's round, answer yeah, the phone. But the all ward. this admin and budgeting and all that kind of stuff that nurses or sisters started doing and management staff. Do you not find like when I was you know, consultant, especially when I was a consultant and the head of the department, there were all these meetings, pointless meetings that achieved nothing. No, it's a meeting to arrange another meeting. 100%, 100%. A meeting to discuss the minutes of the last meeting and plan the agenda of the next and actually nothing else. And I was like, seriously? This this was the meeting? Like, what the frack? Never went to a meeting in my day as a ward sister. Never once went to a meeting. The only meetings that we would ever have was when we went on duty, we would sit in the office to have report. Report would last no longer. Well, as soon as you had the report on the patients that you were allocated for the day, then you could be excused from the report. But you would have to hear the report at the beginning and then you would hand over at the end of your report to all nurses. So everybody, whether it was a nursing auxiliary or whether it was a pupil nurse, whether it was a staff nurse, you would hand over. That was the only meeting that we ever attended. Right. Listen, if you were head of nursing at the Royal College of Nursing and you could, like you're, you're, you can wave your magic wand and make changes, you know, what were, what would be the changes today you would do? Training accommodation, looking after nurses, making nurses feel as though they're valued, not punishing them for choosing a vocation, taking it back to basics, patient-centered care. 
That's all it's about. And, you know, if I had my own hospital and I want to build my own hospital, it would be the tender loving care hospital. And it would go back to nurses looking after patients, whether it be giving them a bedpan, whether it be um, assisting in a, a surgical procedure. Nurses do everything. Nurses are the doctor's observers. Nurses are kind. Nurses are the bridge between the patient and the doctor. Some patients feel scared to ask doctors questions. They feel a little bit overwhelmed. So they ask us first. So we're a bridge. We're just a bridge and we're there to look after people in their most vulnerable days and to make them feel better. So training and looking after our nurses so that they can look after our patients. Was this the case when very, I, I was going to wrap up, but I just only remember something. So I used to do trauma, you know, trauma surgery. Um, and I used to be infuriated. Our trauma list was meant to start at 8, 8.30 and finish at 5.30. And what I'd find is quickly did the ward round, you know, then the orthopedic meeting, get down to theatres for 8.15, 8.30. And staff are all having breakfast in the coffee room. And I'm thinking, why are you coming to work and having breakfast? Surely you should have breakfast and come to work. But there, were, there they would be having their breakfast. And then you're waiting for them. And then you would do the trauma, you know, trauma meeting at theatres. And then you'd ask them to send. And oh my God, they would drag their feet. And then the anesthetist would drag their feet. And you'd be lucky if you had knife to skin at 10 o'clock. Never happened in my day. Now by 3.30, I'm, you know, I'm on my second operation or whatever, and I'm asking, right, guys, can we send for the next patient? Remember, I meant to finish at half five. And at 3.30, the nurse is like, ooh, but are we going to finish on time? I'm like, yeah, we've got plenty of time. Just send for the patient. Oh, we can't send. You need to check with... Sister first. I'm like, well, go ask sister. Sister's not in the meeting in the office room. Well, contact her. Just tell her. Off someone goes. I'm I'm closing the wound. I come at, you know, four o'clock. Right. Are we sent? No, sister wants to speak to you. Go see sister. Are you going to finish on time? Yes, I'm going to finish on time. Are you sure? Yes, I'm going to finish on time. So now it's. 4.15, okay, you can send for the patient as long as you promise you'll finish on time. So then I go back to the editor and say, right, sister says I can send for the patient. Remember, I should have been half three, I said I sent, send for the patient. Now it's 4.15, 4.20. Did she honestly say that? Yes, she said that. Okay. Um, I need to run it by the anesthetist. I'm like, but I just told you, sister said, yeah, I know, but I need to let the anesthetist know. Off they go. Where's the anesthetist? Oh, I don't know. Right, they go off looking for the anesthetist. Then they come back to me, 20 to 5 now. Okay. The anesthetist comes and sees me because I'm it's 20 to 5. We need to be done by half five. The patient comes down here, it's five o'clock. I need to anesthetize. That's gonna be 520. How can you do this operation in 10 minutes? I was like, dude, I asked for this patient to be sent at half three. We could easily have done it. Well, it's not half three now. Look at the time. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't send for the patient. And then that was it. We finished. We got two cases done. And it was like that every fracking day. So when people said to me, oh, you know, there's not enough money for the NHS. It's such a shame. Oh, 
you know, the NGOs, we need to give more money. No, we don't. People need to haul ass. People need to have breakfast at home, come in, do their job. It's just when the consultant says, send for the patient, send for the patient. No one would listen to me. I'm just a goddamn consultant. No one cares. I'm and if st- I and if I would stamp my feet and get a little bit hissy, <laughs> it'd be like, oh, Mr. Malik, oh, you know, we don't like, oh, look at you. And, oh, you know what? It's bullying and harassment. So you got punished if you're hardworking. You got rewarded if you're lazy. I'm, I'm telling I'm you. Shocked. I'm honestly, I'm utterly, utterly shocked. And I worked in theatre for a long time. And I worked at, when I was working at North Devon District Hospital in theatre, I remember I was on a late shift and um, it was a gentleman that had had a transurethral resection prostate and they can be a bit problematic at times. And uh, they come out often with big irrigation bags. And uh, this patient came out. I'd been working since eight in the morning and it was about four in the afternoon. And no, sorry, I'd been I was on a late shift. I'd started at 12 o'clock and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And this patient came out of out of theatre, into recovery where I was. And you know what? I had to Mm. keep that patient in recovery the whole night because I was on call that night. So because I was on call, Mm. I couldn't leave the patient at nine Mm. o'clock when I was due off duty. And I stayed the whole night because I couldn't let the patient go back to the ward until I could see that there was some clear, there was a, a lot of blood clots and then he was yeah, clotting. Yeah, yeah. That hit back. And the, the night, the morning staff came on at eight o'clock and they looked at me and I was like hanging because I'd been there since 12 o'clock the previous day. But they still, one member of staff still expected me to work some of that shift. And it wasn't until the nursing officer came on duty and said, you go home and rest, sleep. But that's what we did, you know. Yeah. We would just, carry on working if we needed to. We wouldn't be stopping at five o'clock. And, t- and No, half three. No way. No way. And, and, and the thing is, and the problem is, the problem is, I then have to go see the patients and the patient's relatives. And these aren't just little, these are people with broken hips. And and it's known that if the, if the surgery is delayed with a broken hip, the complications go up, the pneumonias, the bed sores, death. Yeah. All of these things go up. And and you've got the anesthetists who are lazy. Oh, I'm a, oh, I'm worried about a murmur. I'm like, everybody at this age has got a murmur. Oh, well, we need a, an echocardiogram. Crappy anesthetist, incompetent anesthetist. And then the next day, another anesthetist there. And I'm like, yeah, this patient was cancelled yesterday because they didn't have an echo. And this anesthetist was like, this patient doesn't need an echo. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but the other niece said they've got a murmur. Yeah, everyone's got a murmur. It's fine. This patient needs surgery. Let's get on with it. I'm like, but we cancelled this patient on the insistence that they need an echo. Nah, that's nonsense. No accountability. No one would get that anesthetist into trouble. And those anesthetists and the and the and the people who drag their feet, whether the nursing staff or the ODPs, guess who got promoted? Yeah, they're the people that get promoted. The hardworking ones, the ones with integrity and morals and who give a damn, who give a shit. Yeah, they just either burnt out or left. 
But but the ones who play the system, who know the politics, who go to the meetings and talk crap, yeah, they become they they get they rise the ranks. I mean, this is I mean the the it's really funny. I really really care about the NHS. I mean, I'm having this chat with you because I care. Believe it or not, I really do bloody care about so the NHS. I, but I, but the NHS that existed in the past, I do not care about the NHS that exists today because it's not the NHS. Yeah. It's not it's not true to what it should be. It's like saying, you know, I love my wife, and actually there's an imposter pretending to be your wife. I don't love that imposter. Screw that. I want my wife. And it's like, it's it's funny. This private surgeon cares about the original NHS and wishes we could get that back and not have this parasite this fakery this alien body snatcher it's not not. the nhs i i care about the patients i care about their relatives i care about the staff that i work with and if the staff that i work with are being treated properly then they will work better it's that simple we need Look no, after. it's not. No, it's oh. not. Uh, all those things don't really matter as long as you get the pronouns right. And of course, the pronouns are, are really unimportant. However, yeah. that said, that said, you know, humans are humans. Humans need human contact. That's what humans are here for, for human contact. And if we can't expect kindness and empathy and compassion when we're feeling vulnerable yeah. and scared, and lonely because you're on your own a lot in the NHS now. That's yeah. what's even it's, it's it's even worse. You're on your own before yeah. you had relatives coming in through the door, and you were told by the nurse at seven o'clock or eight o'clock the bell rang, and all relatives yeah. had to go. Blood, yeah, it, it worked. Yeah. It just but, worked. And we haven't even touched what happened during the COVID years and the and the criminality and the oh. evilness that that forget about that we, we, let's not we, talk about that listen i'm going to wrap up one last question okay i ask all my guests this look you're on the deathbed you're a healthy 129 okay you lived a long healthy life you got your children your grandchildren your great-grandchildren all around you what advice would you impart on them health or otherwise before you pass away to the next life Oh my goodness, I wish you'd given me warning on that. I probably Well, would. if you listen to my goddamn podcast, you would know it's coming. <laughs> I do, I do. I'm so sorry. I should have had that one ready, shouldn't I? Yeah, you should have. I think you should I would have. You say be listening to my podcast. I should, I should. I think I would say to everyone, if you can put your head on the pillow at night and know that you've done the very best job that you possibly can, that you've been the very best person that you can. And that you've shown kindness and compassion to your fellow human beings and your moral, you feel comfortable with your moral compass, then you're doing a pretty good job. And to people that are watching now that are, we're all survived this far. We've all got this far. We're all still here. Um, We're all still fighting. There's loads of stuff going on in the background. And my biggest thing I think would say, have faith, be kind and have faith because by having faith in whatever, whether it be God, whether it be a completely different belief, whatever you have faith in, faith is the antidote to fear. So don't be frightened. It's great advice. Don't be fearful. I love it. No. It's great advice. Everyone listening, I really hope you've enjoyed this little walk down memory lane. 
Um, I've loved chatting to Debbie. Debbie, thank you so much. You've been a star. Everyone listening, um, look, I know there's like 10 times as many people listening as people who subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Please just click the follow button, please. And leave a five-star review, please. Please. And then, um, yeah, just thanks, guys. Spread the love. Spread the message. This is the way we fight back. We need to inform and educate our families, our work colleagues, our relatives, our partners, neighbors. Get the truth out. Get the knowledge out. Knowledge is power. Don't be fearful. And, um, yeah, don't let the bastards grind you, grind you down. We're going to we're going to win in the end. Right. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Debbie.